Let me ask you, the last time you went to see a doctor, were you frustrated by any of these things? The doctor or nurse leaving you waiting a really long time, the doctor or nurse spending more time on the computer than talking to you as the patient, and just the general, what about the bureaucracy of our health care system and navigating what insurance will or will not cover? Guaranteed you one of those things has bothered you in the past year or longer. So despite lightning fast technology developments, how can we make sense of the myriad of messes in our healthcare system? To help us dissect this area, I have Jincy Jacob as my guest today. She is an emergency room pediatrician Wow. And angel investor in healthcare startups. She raised and deployed her own million dollar micro fund from 23 LPs and invested the money across seven startups. Doing a lot there, Jincy. I cannot wait for this conversation. But first, welcome to this week's episode of Make Sense, a video podcast that simplifies complex issues at the intersection of tech and people. So whether you're totally hyped on artificial intelligence and you're ready for that robot takeover, or you want to crawl into a cave after deleting all of your social media accounts, I don't blame you. I'm here with my guests to make sense of what's going on so you can design yourself into the future. My name is Lindsay Tabus. I'm a product market fit strategist, innovation consultant, and investment and fundraising advisor. So let's get to it. Jincy, welcome. Thank you, Lindsay. It's such a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this all week. Me too. How are you doing today? I'm a little jet lagged, but fantastic. Yep. Yep. You're one How of the you? traveling doctors. We're going to talk about work uh, workforce shortages in healthcare. So, yep. yep. You got you got some uh, jet lag to work through. You're you're a busy bee. What's top of mind for you lately? Top of mind is probably what we're going to do with all of these shortages in healthcare. Um, it's been it's been kind of a frustrating situation. To give you an example, when I'm in the ER in um, the children's hospital, there's usually about forty people in the waiting room, and you know it ranges from colds to sometimes asthma uh, flare-ups, and you know I worry about getting them in seen on time constantly, just like how you were talking about waiting to see a doctor. We want to make sure these sick people are seen immediately, but sometimes it's just frustrating because we just don't have enough people. Right, right. And it's like um, a physical manifestation of your to-do list that you need to yes. walk through. Yes. <laughs> I can leave a piece of paper on my desk and maybe some things will race around my mind, but you can walk into the waiting room and literally see how much work you have to do, right? Yes, um, it, it kind of hangs over you, uh, almost like a guillotine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't envy that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's kick off with our opening se uh, segment, Crystal Ball, what does the Love future this. hold? Okay. This is where I call out interesting predictions for this year and the experts, my guests, to tell us their hot take. Jincy is my first guest ready to talk about healthcare. So we've got some brand new headlines today. Uh, right. I want you to say, yes, I want that to happen or no, please, no. Whatever comes to mind, I want your, your gut reaction. So, okay. trend. To solve the healthcare worker shortage, 
we're going to turn to technology. So hospitals, tech firms, government agencies will band together, whether it's virtual care, remote monitoring, hospitals at home, and the need for training. What's going on in solving the healthcare worker shortage? <laughs> Look, some of it will definitely be helpful. I think being able to comb through data or mountains of data and kind of alert us to what is actually important. I think that would be massively helpful, but is technology going to replace the workers that are needed anytime soon? Probably not. No, definitely not. I don't know <laughs> if people even ready for the AI takeover or the robot takeover ready to be treated. Uh, Although, <laughs> interesting, interesting take. There are people who are um, using chat GPT to write down patient instructions to make them simple and easy for people to understand and for them to come off in a tone that's like actually empathetic. Um, so, you know, it's, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting use of it, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, we've talked about it a bunch on Make Sense that um, AI ne isn't necessarily going to replace you, but people that know how to use AI will because it is does speed up time, does reduce analysis paralysis and stuff like that. So that's cool to exactly. hear. I mean, we more empathetic healthcare providers sound, sounds awesome, you know? <laughs> so it's really interesting that we use AI for that, but <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's not the first time I've heard, heard people using AI to help them communicate more clearly. So, um, so maybe remote monitoring will also help with reducing or addressing the shortage. Uh, you've talked about, I think like our society and culture have been talking about preventative care and other things that can help, uh, yeah. decide or indicate whether a patient should come in or not. Uh, Yeah. So there's, there's two parts to this, right? So remote patient monitoring, I absolutely think that this is going to be the way of the future. I think we've sort of learned over the last few years that maybe people should not be in big hospitals for a long time. A hospital is a really tough place to be. You can get sicker from it. You can get sick from some of the interventions that we do. Um, and obviously nobody likes to be away from home when they're at their most vulnerable. Um, so I, I really like the promise of remote patient monitoring when we can and um, moving to that trend of hospital at home. I think that's going to be a really interesting and promising area. Um, I think if I was a health system though, I'd be really worried because as you know, most health systems are consolidating, they're building these mega structures. A lot of them are post-op and acute care um, beds, so not sure what they're going to do about it, but we'll see how the trend moves. And yeah, then, you yeah. jumped right ahead because the next trend was healthcare will pull some invisibility tricks. So ambient health monitoring will go beyond just standard remote patient monitoring. Uh, so maybe even continuously collecting data via, you know, IoT devices that are more connected and less invasive than ever. Have you seen this? Are our are, are doctors, uh, medical practices equipped to go beyond remote patient monitoring to actually 
collect data or is that not going to happen anytime soon? Well, Lindsay, we get the health system that uh, we're mandated to get by the government. So what's going to be what's going to be reimbursed, what's going to be, you know, approved um, by Medicaid and Medicare, because that that really is the biggest healthcare payer in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's going to dictate a lot of what we see in the future. So lots of great technologies come come up and you know an example of this is probably uh, pair therapeutics which you know just went under um, and I thought they were fantastic but you know they were just a little ahead of their time in terms of reimbursement so mm-hmm. I yeah. think it will really depend on reimbursement yeah that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting and helpful point for understanding what technologies will make it to the patient's I remember talking to a startup founder last year who had an IoT device for pills, making sure that you take your pills and take them on a timely matter. Mo- timely matter. So, um, and I thought that was was amazing because it could alert the patients to remind them if it, mm-hmm. it didn't detect that the door had been open, but mm-hmm. it could also. Uh, help the doctors understand I, I from what i understand like heart patients don't like a lot of them don't take their meds after the a heart event um and so there's a lot of i don't know what the word is called in healthcare recidivism like or coming back mm-hmm. what's it called yeah, what's yeah. that word called it's, it's readmission yeah recidivism is fine as well yeah but cool yep that happens all the time okay um, I, yeah <laughs> Human behavior is just difficult to predict. So Yeah, I mean, it's hard to introduce new habits. If you're not regularly yeah. taking medicine, it, it's exactly. going to be hard to remember. But man, human brains surprise me because a heart event is really crazy and serious. So I would think everyone would want to take their meds, but not the case. You would be surprised, Lindsay. And that's part of the reason I went into pediatrics, because um, in peds, there's always you know, parents looking out and making sure you do take it. Whereas mm-hmm. if it's an adult, you know, there's there's very little chance that they're listening to other people. Very frustrating. Okay. So this trend I've been wanting to bring up, you know, since I started Make Sense and 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 you're the first, you know, all of these are are first timers for me in this crystal ball segment. Immortality as a service. Yes. Um, Listen, so there is a lot of research um, in this field. And are there people who are working on, you know, making their biological, biological age younger? I think there's a guy who just basically in LA who basically like lives his life following a certain protocol doesn't eat after 2pm. I don't know. I think it's hard to hard to say what's going to happen in the future. I think it's definitely something that a lot of people have been interested in, but it's it's hard to see what it, it's a lifelong or not. It's a pursuit as old as time, right? The yeah. fountain of youth trying yeah. to find the secret place. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I'm from the Middle East, so I usually go by this motto that you know, when it's your time, it's your time, and you know, if you if you think about death all the time and avoid death 
avoid you know think about avoiding death all the time yeah i think you die multiple small deaths but you know yeah. they really just live their lives and die a death and that's the next adventure yeah that's so the that next chapter of your journey wow did not think this is going to get so philosophical so but. profound <laughs> so profound so yeah the the kind of bullet points on this or or the subtitle sub description is that you know of course like I just said, humans have fantasized about extreme lifespans for millennia, but this age-old pursuit is now attracting fresh interest from VCs and tech companies. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of super rich people who are really, you know, into it. Like, a lot of the billionaires are, like, super into this concept, and no wonder there's, like, interest from VCs, right? Because people are willing to pay through the nose for this. Uh, mm -hmm. But I will actually point you to a another statistic, and that is that the overall life expectancy in the U.S. is actually declining, mm -hmm. um, and it has been declining for the last few years. Um, and so maybe we should maybe come back down to earth and focus on that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We'll let the crazy billionaires do their thing, <laughs> but the rest of us. The rest of us plebeians just need to focus on living healthy, happy lives. Yeah. I think and, and, and if I may just add one more thing, I think a part of it is looking into these deaths. I mean, yes, COVID was definitely a factor in the last two years, but there's a lot of deaths of despair that are happening in this country from depression, substance use, things like that. And I think that's... An, that's maybe it's a harder problem to solve or maybe it's an easier problem to solve but i think it's one that's staring us in the face right now and we yeah. really need to look at it more carefully i think about too what is the average american's ideal lifespan i would like that compared to what the current lifespan is you know do i was blessed to have three grandparents live until their 90s 91, 93, and 98. But watching my 98-year-old grandmother over the last 20 years of her life lose all her friends and slowly become depressed, not depressed enough to want to die. She really fought over there. But I thought, man, if I live that long and I see all my friends go away, I might want to just go parachuting without the parachute, you know? So I, I'm real curious what everyone's life expen ideal life expect expectancy is against what it is you know what it actually is i was just talking to a friend who celebrated her 64th birthday and i think she had some interesting words to say she's like i i want to live a little longer but not till i get that musty rusty smell <laughs> <laughs> so there is there is a survey and I love surveys. I, I love, <laughs> I'm a great survey, like uh, creator. So there's a survey that we should do, which is how long do you actually want to live? Right. Yeah. And you know what, for these VCs investing in immortality at a, as a service, this is a really important statistic for market sizing, right? I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> How many people want to live longer than what the average life expectancy is? That's yeah. your, That's your, your like total market. I will. I will also quote just one more thing from my very wise friend who does not want to be musty, 
and rusty um she said she said it's really important to you know not live well basically sometimes i my schedule gets very busy and so she says jinsi you're living a spicy life without any spice and so the, <laughs> that's that's my reminder like let's not overload ourselves with all these things and schedule all these things and just not like live and breathe and appreciate what we have and appreciate all the things that we've been given. Um, yeah. So that's, ye, that's my other ye. take on life. Yeah. Yeah. All this right. is also a philosophy podcast now. <laughs> hey, we are talking about how we can design ourselves into the future. So make sure that your recipe for the future includes lots of spices. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> um, last headline. Okay. Mental health will become the new annual physical. So one in five Americans are experiencing mental illness. Are we seeing a rise in mental health check-ins? Are there opportunity to look at a mental health check-in as like an annual, not a weekly therapy session? I love this question and I have a lot of thoughts on this actually. Yeah, you do. So absolutely, I think there has been a, uh, an, an extreme rise in the number of young people, especially, who are depressed, who show up in the ERs wanting to kill themselves, who are having all kinds of mental health crises of all times. Like, I mean, I have friends who have children who are in university by all means doing well but they're depressed. And then she she was sitting down and having a chat with her daughter and she's like, well, mom, you know, everyone's depressed. It's like, it's just the norm almost. And that makes me really, I guess it makes me fearful for the future. Like what, what, what are we going to do? And what is the reason that, especially our young people are going through this mental health crisis? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that, A, I mean, I think COVID was a big factor, but now that COVID is no longer an emergency, um, we, we still For those have... of you that are listening and not watching, Gen Z did some air quotes around COVID being... Yeah, the WHO ended it as... A non-emergency. Non yeah, yeah. Um, so to do with the way in which we're interacting with each other or not interacting with each other. Human beings are meant to be communal beings. And I think with our current lifestyles, we've just become really isolated. I think the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy talked about how loneliness is the next great epidemic. Um, I think there's a significant percentage of the country that's lonely, not just young people, but also older people. And we as a society need to think about what we what we're doing to alleviate that, because I think this is just starting. I definitely see it as, you know, mental health, mental health amongst young people. It is a, a symptom and a, a result of a lot of our systems, big systems, yeah. not really working. Uh, one area, we don't have to go down this road too far, but it's like, the path from 
education to workforce is so prescriptive and it's obviously failed a lot of people, you know, even my CV, which looks super straightforward and linear with relevant education was not at all. I had problems, you know, surviving in the Mm -hmm. like structured Mm -hmm. nine to five. So Mm -hmm. I I think it's also just a, a result of, of, multiple systems and a disconnect from, you know, what, from the spice, right? From what really feeds the human soul. Yeah, I I think, I think you've put that very nicely. Everyone's leading a spicy life without the spice. (laughs) Yeah. It's like just eating food with like either totally bland and no salt or just eating food with like, the spiciest hot sauce that is extremely painful, like yep. going in, yep. coming out, and everything in between. Yep, yep. <laughs> I, so like- can I also make one more, one more? Um, and this is a technology podcast, so maybe this is not the right way to phrase this. But I really also think we need to look at the way um, children's minds are being changed by this constant exposure to technology. We don't have any data on that long-term studies are being looked at. We, we are seeing changes in how the brain is wired. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know what to make of it. Is it going to be better? Is it going to be worse? Maybe it's just going to be different. But I think this is something that we should focus on. 100%, right? Yeah. What does it really mean to be digitally native? Yeah. 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 Well, to all... All my friends and fellow alumni from my grad program, the School of Information at UC Berkeley, here's your chance. This is a new, we've studied communities forming online. We've studied communication when it's mediated by computers. We got to study what's happening to the kids, okay? And how their brain's developing. I love that call to action. Mm-hmm. All right. So going on to our second segment, because uh, we're focused on healthcare, we have to call up the segment I call from disruptive to disastrous. In this segment, my guests and I talk about when technology backfires, when it has a lot of unintended consequences. If you know me, I'm obsessed with the fact that the growth and innovation of the past 20 years has not resulted in actual economic productivity gains. So so what's the deal? so we're going to talk about the super sexy subject of electronic medical records. Ah. <laughs> the transition to EMRs has been incredibly disruptive, positive and negative on hospital systems in terms of cost, but also to doctors and their ability to deliver patient care, you know, Providers now spend so much time on the computer, and I just would love to get you know your thoughts on on how these systems have helped you deliver care and how they have hurt you. Yeah, I think um, the entire medical field just goes into a collective groan every time you say EMR. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's been a lot of good and bad and the ugly from it. Um, so I'll start with the good. And I will say the only thing you need to do when if you need to like stress out someone working in an emergency room or in a hospital at night is to tell them that there's downtime coming. Downtime is when 
your EMR kind of shuts down for monthly updates. <laughs> and so you don't have access to <laughs> you don't have access to anything. Um, so um it's it's really interesting, but that's that's how the world worked pre-EMR. I actually don't know a world pre-EMR, so I can't really compare, but from my colleagues, um, they used to just write like a few things here and there, your notes were done, you were done for the day, bye-bye. And with the introduction of EMR, all of that changed. You have to um, not only document to, to communicate to the next physician what you saw, um, but you also had to be a billing tool. Uh, you as the doctor also had to document in a way like there's there's like certain amounts of information you have to put. There are certain boxes you have to check in order to get paid. And um, e even if you do that, um, 40 to 60 percent of all of these things that you submit are still denied by the insurance companies. So they've come down really hard on us in order to be able to do all that stuff so if you notice when you go to your doctor they're always on the computer looking away from you that is the reason because there are certain boxes that you have to check off or you didn't do the work then you know then you become as they call it a bozo doctor they call so it a bozo doctor i was told that is a bozo doctor by a mentor <laughs> um so so you are doing not just diagnosing and treating a patient you are billing and trying to get reimbursed and then now that we're going into value-based care because no system is going to fully go in we pro we have a hybrid mixture of fee-for-service and value-based so then because of value-based there are certain quality measures you have to meet you have to talk about certain things which are all good things to talk about like you should talk about colonoscopy screening. You should talk about diabetic eye exams. All of that's great. But like this one person, this poor primary care person has to do all of these things in 20 minutes, Lindsay. Like, how do you do it? A and make small talk and be connected to the patient and be empathetic. And it's just a lot. And so there is this huge issue in primary care where People are just giving up and leaving or retiring early. And um, with with everything kind of moving towards prevention, we're, we're you know, kind of counting on time. They're all leaving, so what do we do? So that's, that's the bad part about EMR. The good part is that we can actually see notes from other systems, and we don't actually have to guess which pills the patient's talking about when they say they're they're taking three pink colored tablets or three pink square shaped tablets like i don't know i'm not good at this stuff so it's it's just good to see um, the information that's already there and someone so, else is thinking so there is a a, a boon or a, a positive for your ability to be do better diagnostics and better treatment when you see the patient but you know you don't necessarily have a lot of time to think about it all and um, yeah, and go through all of these different requirements. Uh, yeah. So I don't blame doctors for wanting to leave if they're burnt out from onerous technologies and ineffective. And it's not activities. just doctors. It's not just doctors. The nurses have nurses. to chart everything that, it, that they do. Like literally everyone has to chart everything that they do. 
Um, and it's just the burden has just been tremendous. And I think people are starting to buckle under it. And so yeah. that's the incentive now to, to like keep people on. Yeah. Because we're lo- losing a significant amount of brain from yep. all sides. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And on top of that, I think just to take an a even more macro perspective on this, I, I think, well, we know hospital systems lost a lot of money rolling out these electronic medical records systems. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of the EMR implementations were required by health insurance companies, right? Right. right. So, so it's, it feels like such an abusive relationship between insurance okay. companies and healthcare systems because the insurance companies are like, you have to do this really large project. And you're going to lose $80 million in the process of mm-hmm. implementing EMR. Mm-hmm. And even if you use all this data like, and enter all the data and share it with us, we're still going to give you a hard time about paying you, paying you for the work that you've done. So it feels like hospital systems are kind of stuck in some Chinese finger cuffs uh, with, with like little wiggle room. And, and that's, that, you know, the people in the system are breaking. Yeah, so it, it is the law of the land that you have to be on electronic medical records now. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's no getting around it. Uh, but unfortunately, the type of systems that we have, like I will not name names, but sometimes um, when you go to enter data in it, it's literally like using, do you remember in the 90s when you had like really primitive data entry systems. It's, like green it's screen, like they call them green screens. Yeah, yeah. So it feels like that. Um, I mean, it's a little better, it's a little better, but um, it, it's a, not a lot better. So it's very onerous and very clunky to use. It, it's not intuitive. Um, and the problem is now we have all this data sitting in this this system. The cost of switching over into something a little, better or more um, more easy to use is massive. And so you're essentially beholden to these, you know, mega, there's like three, four companies yeah. um, who are in charge of this and they, they, they own the data, they call the shots. And even if, I mean, even if the government says you need to share data, there's, there's like at least one bad player, I won't need names, who will not. So, yeah, it's it's um, it's really difficult in that sense. So, got you backed into a corner. Got these healthcare systems backed into a corner. Yeah, yeah. So. And anything anything with healthcare systems and insurance companies it has always been a power play. So it's who is more powerful in that region, um, and that's why you'll you're you know if you read the healthcare news, you'll see a lot of mergers and acquisitions, not just because. Healthcare systems are not doing well financially, but also because um, if you want to, if you want better contracts with health insurance companies, then you better be the big gorilla in the room. Yeah, you're right. When I think about all the different doctors that I've seen, you know, the private practice deciding to get, you know, acquired by a larger uh, company so that they have all the benefits of that larger company, you know, um, I've seen that happen a few times. So 
putting your like investor hat on, you know, where's yeah. the opportunity in all of this? What's the future hold when it, I mean, we can talk about EMRs specifically, but also just trying to get doctors out of, you know, their screens and into what they're meant to do, which is patient care. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting story. I think um, there are lots of things that you, they could do. Um, I think I'm, I'm seeing things about AI companies looking to make these visits a little more, um, a little less document document and like things just being naturally being pulled in um, via AI or, you know, I think a really great company doing a lot of great work in that space is DeepScribe. I think they got a great um, model, but I, I think it will all look. There are a lot of really creative companies out there. There are a lot of wonderful things out there, but I think part of the problem in healthcare is that there, it is highly regulated, and we will get the healthcare system that we are regulated for, right? So, if there are certain things that you can and cannot do, and you'll now and then there are bigger players who don't want to change things then it doesn't matter how many really creative companies there are they will you know ultimately die and fail because of these structural issues in healthcare and i think one of the things that i would urge everyone who is interested in you know healthcare being different to do is you know form a broad coalition I think after after a lot of time of being in healthcare, I think that's what I've sort of realized. You need to those those changes that happened during COVID happened because telehealth laws were relaxed. Mm -hmm. um, and look at how many things that we we got from it. Some good, some bad. You know, um, but the the law of the land really determines a lot of things in healthcare. And the way Medicare and Medicaid is reimbursed determines a lot of things in healthcare. Okay, I'm going to pitch you an idea, and you're going to tell okay. me why it can't work because of all the regulations and bureaucracy. Okay, okay. So you were saying that, uh, what is it, the, the value-based care? And yeah. that you have to go through like a, a lot of notes, it, taking a lot of notes and talking about a lot of things. Could you have an like an audio listening device that is taking voice notes, just like our iPhones can can write down what we're saying and transcribe that all uh, into like a patient notes section? And then maybe there's like a quick like proposal of what should go in the fields that you have. Yeah. To I mean, that that is happening. And I think, Ooh. you know, stuff like that. Yeah. That's what DeepScribe literally does. Cool. Um, so, yeah. So there's, there's another company called Augmetics that has scribes in another country. Like they can they can actually see things through Google Glasses that you wear um, that are like, you know, taking notes, reminding you to, hey, do this. Um, so I think there are lots of things that are happening right now. And I think with this emergence of AI and healthcare, we'll, we'll definitely see a lot of cool things that will hopefully decrease the administrative burden because I think it's really hard on people who are working. Yeah. 
assistance. I imagine the big nut to crack is privacy, right? If there is another person in the room that a patient doesn't know about because they're coming in through Google Glass, you know, that. And and then also like how the data gets transmitted, if it gets stored anywhere, you know, people Mm -hmm. don't want their voice stored in certain places or voices could eventually be used to using generative AI to create new conversations that no one ever had because the AI has the voice. So I imagine that's a big nut to crack in all of these. I would really, you know what I would actually really like to see? What I would really like to see is the entire visit broken down a little bit from a note to maybe like an interactive multimedia experience. Um, For example, like you could actually record your findings rather than describe them in words. Because as you know, when you see and hear things, it's a lot more powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think, I think we'll move towards that, but I think things in healthcare again, move very slowly. So I would love to, I would love to see a change in that. What about self-service vitals? Like at the beginning of every doctor's appointment, you have to get on a scale, you have to do your blood pressure, your temperature, confirm what medications you're taking. But like, what if there was like, you know, one of these workout devices that are on the market, like Peloton has, where it can like see you and stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What if that's in the like primary care physician's office? And while you're sitting, waiting for you're taken into a patient room and while you're waiting for the doctor to get to you, you can stand in front of this screen and put, you know, your fingers and hands where it needs to. So it can take your weight and blood pressure and temperature and do all of that without a person. Lindsay, I would love a world where you kind of have a, a remote monitoring device connected to you that automatically does that for you. And we have linear data rather than one one set of vitals. I think sure. that that is those are things that I'd be interested in. And then when there are changes, you know, you're told to go in and get checked out and your doctor is alerted. I think those are the kinds of things that we we could be moving towards. Um, and I think that that makes me kind of excited about it's it's just it was just the process of combing through that data um, because someone has to do it um, but if we have AI to kind of help do things like that and then that way we're actually moving towards preventive care I think sometimes I hear about I had a colleague who perfectly healthy you know but in December got diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer um, you know yeah. I, I would love to get away from surprise diagnoses like that and if there are ways in which we can use biomarkers or whatever else it is that you know will monitor us and kind of not just towards prevention rather than late stage detection and that would be powerful yeah since i'm giving you wish lists (laughs) we i think we could go on forever but i want to get to the third segment because you are straddling two different careers as a doctor and an investor, I have to bring in who needs a safety net anyway. In this segment, I ask my guests to share the risks, failures, no learning lessons of entrepreneurship and creating their own path into the future. So um, 
Let's start here. Why is moving into investing important to you as a medical professional? So I, I've been in healthcare since I was 18, and I've, I've seen lots of different things done in lots of different ways in different countries. And I've seen healthcare delivered to different groups of people. Um, and this is what I love. This is what I know I'll do for the rest of my life. And I want to use that expertise to help help drive innovation in the right direction um, and help the right companies as much as I possibly can. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not anyone special. I'm just like a regular person who works with patients. Um, but I think, I think I, you know, come from a unique vantage point where this is not something theoretical to me. It's something that I breathe and love and care about. Um, and so, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go through anything to see it done right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's when I was um, doing my previous job, which is working in an FQHC system, trying to bring in companies that were right for our patients. I saw that a lot of the patients that I wanted to help with that, like there weren't, there wasn't a lot of representation for people who wanted to work with just regular people and not someone who was, you know, private insurance, mm -hmm. you know, covered by private insurance. And so I think innovation will work best when it can serve everyone and not just a select group of people. And so that's sort of my premise. That's very, very powerful. So what observations have you had uh, as you've made the transition, whether it's what you've learned about venture investing in the startup world, or that is way different, or what you've learned about the medical profession that, that you like, or now really find frustrating because what you see in yeah. high tech industry. Yeah, I mean, this is such a great field because you keep learning all these kinds of new things. And I think it really keeps you on your toes. Uh, when I speak with a founder, I like to look up a little bit about what they're doing and also the field in which they're operating in, uh, what that market looks like and you know what what the potential of that market is so it it's it's tremendously valuable for my continued education and growth um and then also i think sometimes when i talk to people i think if you're not in a system that delivers care you you forget how backwards and frustratingly slow we are sometimes um like i'll i'll listen to this pitch about like this ai that can do this and then i'll go to the hospital and i'm you know literally clicking and doing manual data entry in a system that looks like it could have been from the 90s so it's a little bit like back to the future <laughs> in either direction you're just constantly transporting from exactly. the old days to the future days <laughs> yeah um so I think it, it makes me a better doctor as well, just knowing what's out there and, you know, being sort of a conduit or a bridge between people who are clinical, who are, I mean, I think if you ask anyone who's clinical about technology, they're all going to have that like, uh, well, we tried EMR, 
look where that got us kind of a mentality um to like you know the the innovators who are super passionate and like really want to change things um so building that bridge i think is going to be a role that i'm going to play for the rest of my career and i think i'm quite passionate about that. yeah we need people we need system changers right in the inside and on the outside so what do you think is the biggest challenge to getting more medical professionals into health tech and investing in the future possibilities? Yeah, so I, I will say there's, um, and I, I'm just going to be honest about this stuff. Um, there's definitely a, um, in investing anyway, there's definitely a mentality that you have to be from a finance and investment banking background. Um, I had to like really learn a lot of concepts during that time. And I mean, you know, I am a nerd. I've been doing this. I, mm -hmm. I learned for a living, essentially. Um, but it's still hard to kind of break into that mold um, and and convince people that, hey, this person may have insights because they've been in that world for 20 years now. Um, so that that's definitely a challenge that I hear from lots of people who are interested in stuff like this. Um, and as far as technology, I think one of the challenges that some of my colleagues who have transitioned from healthcare to health tech are facing is that the doctors are usually put in like a box, like a medical box. Like you can come up with clinical protocols and maybe do some clinical stuff, but there's no other movement for you in this arena. And I think for physicians who are entrepreneurial and creative, that is, I mean, there's nothing worse. Stifling. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think those are the two big challenges that people face. I mean, there are definitely doctors who are against changing and wanting to maintain things a certain way, but there are definitely a lot of people who are for change and want to do things that are differently and are curious. Um, but stuff like this is definitely killing, killing people and um, take, you know, keeping people away from, from technology. Right. Um, so, so one, the hurdle for anyone getting into investing that isn't from finance is, you know, massive. proving your worth, right? Yeah. Like proving that you get this, you know, you get business models, you understand, you know, you can talk go to market strategy, yeah. not just be a subject matter expert to talk about the nuts and bolts of how the product works. What And then just like any industry or any profession, just all people, there's a percent that are just detractors for, for change and for newness. Uh, that's yeah. just part of the human condition. And some people have those genes and other people like us don't <laughs> we're ready for constant evolution yeah and, cool. and Lindsay, I, I know we've talked about this but there's also the additional challenge of being a woman yeah um, <laughs> I, I thought that was just a given we we don't need to spell that out do we <laughs> right exactly exactly right. being a, a fairly young like fairly normal to talk to type person, right? Yeah. <laughs> Woman with yeah. like the credentials that you and I both have. Yeah. Somehow that doesn't get us 
taken more seriously. (laughs) Right? We've talked about stuff well-meaning men have said to us. Yeah. Uh, Why is that? You know, so... Um, so yes, okay, so the hurdles to be fair, not having a finance background, being pigeonheld as a SME only, your gender or gender identity, <laughs> being other, um, all of these things are really challenging for getting into investing as a medical professional. But sure. you give us hope, Jincy, you give us hope. I'm going to keep fighting, Lindsay. I I know that to be true. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's wrap up. Let's make it make sense. I think my biggest takeaway from Jincy is that technology in the healthcare space, the evolution of it is highly dependent on regulation and who holds the power. And hopefully the power is shifting a little bit more uh, by hospital systems consolidating so they can be at parity with the insurance companies. And what we'd really like to see is the patient experience being enabled and empowered by technology, not being hampered by it. Right? Absolutely. Cool. Have a little empathy for your, you know, your provider the next visit you're in, ask them about the computer that they're staring at and whether they enjoy this (laughs) this at all. No one enjoys it. Find me a doctor who is like, I love it. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you for listening to Make Sense with me, your host, Lindsay Tavis, and guest, Jincy Jacob. We hope you enjoyed our take on the healthcare systems. Jincy, do you want people reaching out to you online if they're a healthcare uh, startup? Absolutely. Yeah, fine. I'm on LinkedIn um, or I can share my email. Yeah. All right. Well, if you want to get in touch with Jincy, let's start with her LinkedIn uh, profile. See if you can connect right there. Make sure you add in the connection request that you heard her on this podcast and want to talk more, make it meaningful, make it personal. That's how you you build real relationships online. Uh, if you want to continue, and of course, this has to be a yes. If you want to continue to be the smartest person in the room, hit that subscribe for next week's uh, episode and um, follow wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe on YouTube. So thank you, Jincy for joining me.